Hello and welcome to The Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. I'm your host, Dr. David Hardy, and today we've got a very special guest, my co-worker, physiotherapist, Matthew Boyd. How are you doing today? I'm very well, Dave. Thank you. Excellent. So Matthew, you're a running coach, physiotherapist, and Ironman as well correct? I'm the first two. Uh, I've done one half Ironman. And so I'm half an Ironman. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we'll give you full credit on that one. That's quite the accomplishment <laughs> there. Now, for a lot of people out there, they're going and saying, well, I absolutely hate running. Like even myself, I've I've completed a few half Ironmans, and actually my first triathlon ever was a full Ironman. And on all of these, I'm probably walking oh, about half of the, the run mm -hmm. event, to be honest. And uh, as I get older, and I saw this on your site as well, and it just resonated with me, is as we get older too, we, we want to stop running more. Yeah. And it, it hurts more. So, and you even said that, Growing up, all these cross-country events that you had to do in school, you absolutely hated yourself. I did. So what, what shifted and, uh, and how do people go from absolutely hating running or forcing themselves to do it to actually enjoying it? I think it's different for everyone. So I can only really speak for myself. Uh, one of the key, there was two key differences for me for the reasons I hated running when I was in my 20s to you know going to love it in my 30s the the first was I had to slow down it was really simple uh, I was okay. running too quickly I didn't realize so you know within half an hour if you imagine trying to do a half hour run as fast as you can I was really struggling so I would say okay I'm going to go run for half an hour to help me train for my you know soccer I was playing at the time and it would just be really, really unpleasant. So by the end of it, I'm really struggling. And I'd do that like two or three times a week for as long as I can make myself. And I just, I, I presumed that if I kept doing that, it would get easier, it would get more enjoyable. But not realizing at the time that if you keep your intensity or your effort the same, you know, that half hour remains as hard. You just run faster as you get fitter. Right. So if I wanted to go longer and actually sort of get into more uh, endurance type running where you can run half marathons, marathons, 10Ks, those kinds of things, you know, I really had to slow down. And um, that that I kind of learned by trial and error. You know, I'd, I'd started running more because I was working in London in the UK Okay. At a, at a clinic where we would get a lot of injured marathon runners in around marathon time because it's a big event there. And... We That's had a, a running huge torch. event in London, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah. One of the, the bigger ones in the world, correct? It is. It's hard to get into. I, I never actually was able to do it because you, you have to sort of apply and hope to get picked. And uh, it's uh, it's hard to get into. Okay. And, you know, so the injured runners would come in and I would right. try and help them. And we had a running coach in the clinic and I asked him to sort of teach me about running technique analysis. So he would look at me running, do some analysis, give me some things to work on. Now we'd go out and run to practice. And it was just a way to kind of learn how to help my runners. And, you know, after a few weeks of doing that, I'd 
inadvertently slowed down a bit and actually started to enjoy the running, which was a completely <laughs> new experience for me. <laughs> so, um, and I remember the first time I ever ran 10 kilometers because I, I ran six kilometers one day and I was like, I, c- I didn't need to stop there. I could have kept going. <laughs> so the next day I went out and I thought, I'm going to run 10 kilometers. So I went quite slow, but I didn't right. need to walk and I didn't feel terrible. And I got to the end, I was like, you know, that wasn't that bad. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was really proud of myself for running 10K. I don't think I'd ever done that before. Um, you know, in soccer, you're usually only running about, you know, six or seven K for a training run, unless you're you know, right, doing yeah. very high level of soccer and they're, they're doing some really intense training. So, uh, yeah. And then, then I was like, okay, I want to do a marathon. That was, so this is my second thing was first I had to slow down a bit. So it wasn't so unpleasant. And then second, I had to have something to shoot for. I had to have right. something that was inspiring that made me want to run. And that's remained the case, you know, it's 10 years later now, it's still the case that when I don't have something that I'm training towards or that I'm striving for that inspires me in some way to to want to get out there and run, I won't. I'll do a little bit just to not feel guilty. <laughs> so <laughs> so those two things are, are kind of key and and that thing for me was was the marathon because you know I would run these half hour runs and I'd be like, how does anyone run any further than that? This is bonkers. But then I knew that people could run marathons. In fact, lots of people run marathons and it didn't make any sense to me. I was right, like, yeah. I don't know how someone just could endure that for hours on end when I'm like dying after 20 minutes. Well, they slowed down. That was one <laughs> key. <laughs> uh, I never said I was the brightest. <laughs> so, uh, that. so you were in an absolute speed damage when you first started. You were I trying just to run fast. Yeah. yeah you were literally trying to sprint uh, a marathon. Not by the by, by the time I could I did that 10k, that is when I started to think, huh, I could I could train for a marathon. That yes. might be something I could actually whereas before it was just this ludicrous thing that made no sense to me. So um yes, all of my runs before that were, you know, probably what anyone who does a butter running would consider like a tempo or a threshold run, right? It's a fairly intense run and it's supposed to be pretty unpleasant. Um, right. But that, that was just how I ran all my runs. And I think a lot of people do that because they just think, okay, this run is 5K long, so I'm just going to go as fast as I can for 5K. Or this this run is 8K long, so I run as fast as I can for 8 kilometers. And it leads to a very unpleasant experience, and it's not necessary, in, in my opinion. <laughs> That's, that fascinates me. All right, so you were working with this with a colleague, a running coach, and started to learn running technique. So isn't running just getting out and running? Uh, what do you mean by by technique here? Uh, I would say yes at first. So it really depends where you're at. If you're just starting to run, then you don't really want to be getting bogged down in things like technique or shoes or anything. You just want to get out there, run, run a bit slower than you think you can, maybe take some walk breaks and just get a get a feel for it and start to to build up some kilometers and once you've got a little bit of fitness you'll be able to enjoy it a bit more so that takes a few weeks so at first people should i don't really advocate that someone brand new to running would start with their technique because it's gonna they're gonna get bogged down in but beyond that 
Um, like anything, you can run well and you can run badly. So you can play tennis with good technique and bad technique. You can ski with good technique and bad technique. And um, running is no different, except that uh, the difference between someone who is able to run well um, in terms of technique and someone who is running poorly is not as easy to see. So the difference between as someone who um, is a proficient skier and someone who is, you know, just learning to ski. It's very obvious that there's a big difference in technique with the skier. With the runners, you can kind of see that, you know, if you watch a, a professional race, you can see that the runners run well, but you're not really sure why. It just kind of looks kind of light and graceful and efficient. And then when you see yourself run, you're like, oh, that doesn't look the same. But you don't really know why. Or f- just feel yourself run. Yeah. <laughs> Like it looks like in a good runner that they're like prancing like a deer, like it's an effortless foot strike and they bounce and they they're off. And uh, then when you're not a good runner, every step is like painful. It's like this big clonk on the on the pavement. So what's actually going on there between the two? Well, there's a few key differences that, you know, we know from the literature pan out most of the time. One that I talk about often is step rate. So how many steps you take each minute is you're running cadence. And we know that regardless of speed, better runners tend to choose higher cadence. So if you think of someone riding a bike and they're going along at a certain speed, uh, it's the turnover of their feet. And if they were to switch okay. down a few gears and turn their feet over a little quicker, they would be running, they would be cycling, sorry, with a higher cadence. And running's the same. So regardless of what speed you're going, trying to have the feet turn over a little quicker and not taking quite such big steps does tend to result in improved technique. So that's what you see in professional runners. They'll tend to on average have a higher cadence at any given speed. So that's one of the things I look at. Okay. Another thing that you would see often is something called overstriding in someone who's not uh, as proficient at running. And that's when instead of landing their foot somewhat underneath their body, they'll sort of reach it out in front of them and hit the ground somewhere, you know, a little bit out in front. Whereas a a better runner, a a more advanced runner, will tend to land underneath them and kind of skim the foot. I think of it like, you know, road runner, when his wheels, when his feet sort of spin underneath them. That's how a, an elite runner or a, a runner with good technical run, whereas an, a more um, someone with worse running technique will tend to take bigger steps and they'll tend to reach out in front a little bit more, hit the ground, and then sort of lurch over that step and okay. then push off. So it's almost like they're hitting the brakes each stride instead of essentially, it yeah, carry I mean, it's, it through. It, it's not quite 50 50, but if you imagine you reach out in front of you and hit the ground. Yeah. You're not really pushing yourself forward until your hips get past your foot. And then for the second half of your stride, you're pushing forward. So what a, a pro does is sort of land more underneath them. So they're only really pushing forwards. Whereas a, an amateur would land more out in front of them. They would have to overcome that slight breaking force before they can then push for the next step. Okay. Now, when you're running, do you focus more on your upper body then? Or on your feet? Or do you start with one, integrate the other, and then go from there? Like, what, sh- what should the upper body look like now that we can picture what the feet look like? 
The upper body will always do a counter rotation to the lower body, naturally. If you try and run any other way, you'll not be able to do it. So the, the role of the upper body is to rotate the opposite way to the way that the um, lower body is rotating. And that provides some balance and a little bit of tension in the trunk for a recoil. Right. Now, what you should think about, you know, that really depends and it's not an easy one to answer. So for some people... If I, if I want to increase their step rate, let's stick with that nice, simple example. I want to get them to run with a higher cadence, and then I maybe ask them to do something like increase their foot speed, or I give them a little metronome that beeps and asks, asks, excuse me, ask them to match it, and it doesn't work. They don't know how to do it. It's not resonating. They, they can't get it. One of the things I'll do sometimes is get them to speed up their hands. I'll say, move your hands quicker. And because the feet and the hands are sort of, intrinsically linked internally you can't speed up your hands without speeding up your feet so some people find that cue works better for them so if they think about speeding up their hand cadence or their arm swing cadence sometimes i'll give them the beat and i'll say punch the beat right so it's left right left right and they'll have a metronome going click 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 and they've got to punch that beat so there's some of the ways you can use the upper body okay but whether you would do that or not depends on the, the person in front of you or uh, the, for the listener, it really depends on whether you find trying to increase your foot speed doesn't really work for you. You're not quite sure how to do it. Something you might try is, I'm going to increase my hand speed and see how that works. Okay. Now, what are you seeing like uh, physically when you're actually working with a lot of runners in, in your PT practice here? Because uh, you... In a chiropractic, we, we always see leg length discrepancies. We always see tighter hip flexors on one side and usually a tighter hamstring. And then, of course, calves are always a mess in most people. So what are you seeing in your PT practice when you're working on your running population here, especially new runners? A bunch of stuff. <laughs> I'm, trying, I'm trying to pick out the most pressing issue from a technique standpoint i'd say overstriding and cadence right. from an injury standpoint typically knee pain and this is the that's pretty much borne out by the research that uh, if you look at the top five running injuries right most of them are in the knee the others Oh, I can see that. Plant, yeah, plantar fascia and uh, Achilles tendon pain that, and shin splints, sorry, is always up there. But I'd say the people I see, it's mostly their knees. And, and that does harken back a little bit to that overstriding because you'll tend to land with your knee a little straighter for that. Okay. Um, but also it's a bit of a habitual thing. So runners of all stripes tend to just run. You know, so they're, they're, they'll either consider themselves runners and they'll just run, or they will be trying to get fit again and using running as part of it. But that's kind of the only thing they're doing at the minute. So they're not really doing any other fitness stuff. So the big mi- missing piece that I'm always pushing with people is strength training. So, oh, seriously? Okay. Yeah, and that's most, there's quite a bit of evidence in other sports that it helps reduce injuries. There's, good evidence in running that it improves running economy which improves which improves performance 
Um, but the main reason I'm interested in it is that the type of runner I work with is usually like a recreational runner. They're usually kind of middle-aged and they have other issues. And, and knee pain is a common one. And we know that the stronger you make someone's legs, the less their knee is likely to hurt. And if they have knee pain, the less it will hurt. So an easy way of thinking about this, there's maybe an oversimplification of what is actually happening. But the way I explain it to make it simple is when you run, you jump off one leg and land on the other. When you land on the other leg, um, you'll have something called a ground reaction force, which is where the, you hit the ground and the ground sort of pushes back on you with an equal but opposite force. We call that a ground reaction force. Impact is another way to think about it. So okay, that impact yes. each step, you have to absorb that. And you can either absorb that with your bones and your joints, or you can absorb it with your muscles and your tendons. And there's nothing that else there to absorb it with. So if you have really weak, pathetic, spindly muscles that don't fire quickly <laughs> and aren't very strong, then the stress, the impact only has bones and joints to be absorbed in. So if you've got someone with knee pain or patellofemoral pain, which is pain on the back of the kneecap or trouble with knee arthritis, which is degeneration of the joint lining of the knee or shin splints, which is a bone reaction uh, in the tibia, these are all problems where if you could reduce the impact per step that was going into the bones and the joints by absorbing some of it through the muscular system, then you potentially reduce the stress per step on those structures and allow someone to run more, hopefully without those areas becoming overburdened and painful. So I wouldn't say it was lack of strength so much as lack of strength training because, okay. you know, if you can actually sort of run a little bit, you are technically strong enough to run, but it's whether yes. you're strong enough to run for a long time and not have your bones and joints hurt. So that's, they're two different questions. Okay. Now you, you mentioned one thing very important, like with the strength training though, and, and I've seen you do this in your practices, an overhead squat test. So this can mm -hmm. translate into other athletes that maybe don't want to run as much. What are you looking for when you're doing a squat test there and kind of just walk us through that one? Um, so one of them I look for is do they fall over backwards? <laughs> That's an easy one to do <laughs> yourself at home for your listeners. So you, you put your hands above your head, you put your feet at a comfortable width and you try and squat down. And if you fall over backwards like I do, there's a good chance your ankles are stiff. That's a really common one. Um, so another way to test that is to put your foot near a wall and try and touch your knee onto the wall and then move your foot back a bit. Move your foot back about the distance of your fist. There's about seven, eight centimeters kind of thing. And if you, if you try and touch the knee on the wall and your heel comes up so you can't reach it without your heel coming off the wall, off the floor, sorry, either your, your soft tissues around the back of your ankle or the maybe the... Um, joint itself in the front of the ankle is restricted in some way on one side or the other. So th that's uh, the first one because we know that um, the movement that I'm talking about there where the knees go past the toes when the foot's on the floor, right? it's important for running because you can't run if you can't do that. And there is uh, a little bit of evidence that shows if you have restricted dorsiflexion, which is what that movement's called, that you're more likely to have running injuries. And, and we believe that one of the reasons that is the case is that 
that limits your options for how you can absorb that impact that we were just talking about. You know, if you limit the motion in the ankle, there's less scope to lower the leg forwards as you're absorbing the impact. You have a limited range, a limited amount of time to do that. So that's the first thing I look for. Do they look like they're going to topple backwards? And then I'm looking at the ankles. Is that a problem? Is that something we need to work on? Um, the other thing would be, uh, what do the knee, knees do? So, um, yeah, let's move up the, the chain there. Sorry. Yes. Let, let's, let's move up the chain there. So we got the ankles and, and the balance right there. So knees and a lot of knee pain, what's going on with that? So with the squat test, um, it's more common among women, but you see it in, in both sexes, but it's more common that as they squat down, their knees will want to come together. Um, and even if they manage to hold them apart because someone's told them that that's what they should do, <laughs> you can see that they're, they're collapsing inwards. And then if you do a single leg version of the same squat test, you'll see it more so. And there is some evidence that that movement of knees coming inwards as you're running is more likely to result in uh, knee pain. And one of the reasons we think there is just because it's a less efficient way to move. So if you stand on one leg and do a little, little squat, a little knee dip, and then you jump to the other foot, that's what running is. So if you did that little squat and your knee sort of caves in, for want of a better word, it's not a very efficient way to then jump to the other foot while you're running. So if you see knees coming in, you're not necessarily going to, you know, get all upset about it, but it, it may be worth, number one, looking at the running technique and still seeing if they're doing the same thing. But number two, mm. looking at strengthening the hips, particularly on the outside of the hips, like the glute med muscles and some of the muscles in the trunk that support the pelvis to help stop that thigh bone wanting to drift inwards and take the knee over across what we call the midline. So, you know, do the squat, knees come in. Okay, we're going to make those hips stronger. You get on your side, you do some side planks and some clams and things like that. And you try and increase the strength around the outside of the hips to help support that movement. Okay. All right. And then what about upper body then? Upper body, uh, it's more varied. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I was like common things are common that that ankle and knee thing are, are really common with the upper body. I, I see more variety. Um, yeah, I would say limited latissimus extensibility, but I don't okay. always work on it uh, just because it's not it's the most mainly a lower, lower limb sport anyways, right? So, well, that's the thing because when usually when I'm working with runners, they're almost always injured um, most of the time and it's in the leg. Like 99% yeah, of running injuries are in the leg. <laughs> so it's, it's not so much that there's nothing further up into the trunk that we could work on like um, thoracic rotation, neck rotation, um, all... Um, latissimus extensibility these kinds of things it's more that you're trying to pick your battles and you're, you're looking at what's the lowest hanging fruit here you know if we've got half an hour together what's the best use of that time so i don't spend as much time on the upper body um yeah right now with a sprinter though they need the upper body strength as well too like you look at the sprinters they're they're just ripped all around yeah. as well um so I was kind of wondering if that translated into long distance events too, but 
it makes sense in the the practice that you're at that uh, it is kind of yeah it's going to be the major injuries that people actually come in for versus the performance and the enhancement side of things where you'd you'd want to look at at everything there um, you know it's it's really not being studied uh, very much if you look uh, there's been a few review articles looking at running technique and and what is important in terms of predisposing to injury or um, improving running economy there's only a handful of studies that have really had a, a good look at the upper body and tried to investigate what is efficient what's not efficient what's strong what's weak uh, what's restricted what's mm-hmm. not so we can try and make some sense of what we should be looking for and in the absence of that information you're like uh, as long as it doesn't look crazy weird let's just leave it alone <laughs> so but I, I believe that the sprinter example that you gave does sort of indicate that there's something there that's probably missing. So like you said, when you look at the sprinters, the fastest runners in the world, right, over a short period, short distance. Yes. And not one of them is like spindly in the upper body, you know? And you would think that if there was, you know, they're not going to waste probably 10 hours a week strengthening their upper body if they don't benefit from that so their upper body from the waist up is influencing their performance we would we would just infer from the fact that there isn't a a, a elite level sprinter who isn't ripped right in the upper right, body yeah. so, so there must be some there almost certainly is something advantageous about that now that is for a powerful sport or, you know, like less than a minute, usually we're talking about. Now, does that matter when you get to things like 5K, 10K, marathon and longer? Now, most of those guys, that the elites, are spindly, but they're probably not weak in their upper body. Right. The question is, how strong do they need to be? They probably don't need to be jacked like sprinters, but just completely neglecting the strength and range of movement and coordination of their upper body is probably not what they're doing either. We just don't have a lot of research to tell us what is correct and what's not, unlike the lower limb where we have lots and lots and lots of research looking at the uh, kinematics and other variables in the in the lower limb. Right. Now, uh, we, we've chatted about, about this side of it too, uh, that we because you do vestibular therapy and you look at balance too in, in other other cases that come into into your office there. And uh, I always look at basically closer to the end of a long distance event and you start to see kind of that twisting and torquing and in the people's gates and posture as they're as they're moving and more fatigued at the end. And then you'll also see a different cadence with each foot. Um, have you started to kind of integrate that into the running side of things as well, that balance coordination aspect to it? Or do you think that's still another kind of untouched area that could be explored in this, this field? Yeah, untouched area. That's, you know, when um, we had you on my podcast a, a little while back and you were talking about this stuff, you know, it's, it's very intriguing to think about, right? Because we don't really know how those uh, kinds of variables might affect performance or injury uh, 
avoidance, let's say. Right, yeah. So, yes, you know, we, we've sort of gone with the basics. How strong is someone? How do they move? Like, if we look at the moving, what are they doing? We've right. looked at um, how much range of movement do they have in different joints. Very, very simple. What really, again, hasn't had a lot of time is things like coordination, things like balance. Um, I don't know what to call it, but what I would call like a CNS fatigue kind of thing, like a neurological tiring or fatiguing as the as the event is occurring so that someone's coordination, balance, um, um, writing responses and other such things are not as sharp as they were when they started. And are the better athletes more fatigue resistant in that sense, in that sort of neurological sense? Right. It's fascinating to think about. I don't know where we're at with it. You know, I don't know where to start with it in, in terms of how to assess it and how to treat it, you know? Right. Definitely. No, I think that's that's an excellent point there. And it's one of those things, too, about you would think with long distance events where it's once again, it's it's running. You're you're not going into catching a ball and and defensive patterns or offensive patterns. Yet there's still so much unknown that could be utilized to improve performance. And nutrition's another side of this too. And I know you've dived into nutrition quite a bit with runners. And what what are you recommending there on that side as well? And what opportunities are maybe there for for further investigation? I'd say that again, it's another one of those where there's lots for further investigation. So for example, um, you've seen in recent years, people being more, doing more funky stuff with their diet at the elite right. level. Um, you know, extreme uh, ex- people who are doing extremely long events, switching to less carbohydrate supported diets. And, and less carbohydrates, others- really. Yeah, so the, um, wow. there's some in the ultra community who believe and, uh, and are having success with a, a diet that is very low in carbohydrate and high in fat. And the okay. belief being that if they can improve their fat, um, if they can improve their fat adaptation so that they can burn fats for fuel, they'll be more able to compete in a, a event, events that are very long, so longer than five hours, Ironmans and um, ultra events at the elite level okay but even the the marathon and these kinds of things because when you're you know when you're running you've essentially got two fuel tanks it's like you're a hybrid car you've got your your fat um supply and you've got your carbohydrate supply and your, your carbohydrate is kind of like your petrol and then your fat is kind of like your electric and your electric's not very fast but it can go for a long time and your petrol is faster, but it runs out. So, <laughs> and this is the kind of <laughs> the balance between the two, particularly in the marathon is for most recreational runners, where it becomes more of an issue where you're running more than two hours. Usually that's when these things become really important. Or I'd say they're always important, but it becomes more evident. The difference, you know, not many people will bonk, which is where you just totally can't run anymore or, um, with any sort of reasonable pace compared to your normal, that that bonking usually doesn't happen to people within two hours. It's usually right. after two hours. And that's the kind of difference between that half marathon, that marathon distance for most people. 
I mean, some people can run a marathon in just over two hours, but not many of us. So <laughs> the the thing with nutrition, I go at the minute more with what is common and what is has been around a while and seems to work and less so with any kind of... Um, let's say a more cutting edge theory, right? So, so if you, if you go on like that, you want to do more fat adapted type, uh, behaviors, yes. I'd say that's more that there's, there may be something there, but if you look at the behavior of most, um, professional, um, long distance runners, they are eating very high carbohydrate diets and they are fueling their runs with like 20 grams of carbs every 20 minutes or something like that. So they're using a ton of carbs. So, I tend to go with that just because it has a very long and um, solid history of, of working well enough for most people most of the time. Yes. And I'd say that for most of the runners I work with, then really not doing just the basics, which is just um, when you're running for longer than a couple of hours, you're, you're taking some fuel on board, be it uh, sports drinks or gels. They'll have a tiny bit compared, like uh, I had uh, Bob Murray on my um, podcast a while back, and he was talking about what he recommends. Uh, he works, helped uh, start the Gatorade um, Scientific Institute okay. or something like that. That's an interesting one. Yeah, and, and he was saying that, you know, really you need about 60 grams of carbs per hour. So to translate that, if you take those little goo gels or whatever, most of them have about 20 grams in each. So you need like three of them an hour, right? So most runners are having maybe one on their long run. A lot of runners are trying to do their marathon, getting by on one or two gels and a half a sports drink for the whole three and a half, four, four and a half, five hours that they're out there. And they're extremely far below what would be typical <laughs> in the more <laughs> elite experienced runner, right? They're, they're like at a fourth or a third of what most elite runners are taking on board in terms of fueling. Like I say, that isn't to say that this is exactly the way every runner should do it, but it is to say if most elites are doing something, then it's probably reasonably good practice. So it's worth starting there and then maybe improvising on top of there. So I try and get people to just get the basics right. Okay, we're gonna, you're going to do your long run this weekend. It's going to be two hours. You're going to have at least three gels an hour or you're going to have two gels in a sports drink or two gels and half a sports right. drink, something like that. And, then and there is a big difference between training runs and in a competition when it comes to these two, correct? There is, but... The the main thing I've found with training versus competition is that you can do your training runs. Your lo let's say your long training run. Um, say you're going to go out tomorrow and do a three-hour bike ride or a two-and-a-half-hour run. You typically won't be going quite at race pace. You'll go a little bit below it. Yes. So it'll be a little easier. And you'll typically not be going as long as the race. So let's say for a marathon, for example, that's 42 kilometers the longest training run usually is about 32, you know, most of the time, not always. Right. Yes. So everything's easier on race day, right? 
And then <laughs> the, the difficulty comes that, okay, I'm going to just, and I've done this myself in the past. I'm training for a marathon, but you know, I don't want to, I want to be fat adapted. So I don't want to have too much carbohydrate on board. So I'm not going to fuel my training runs. Okay. So I, I just eat hardly anything. I, I have one or two gels for my two or three hour training runs. I get through the whole training cycle and it was easy. It was no problem. The problem is that when I come to do my marathon and I have to run 42 kilometers, it's going to take me an extra hour or so. I have not practiced eating anything. And now I'm supposed to try and eat three gels an hour or two gels in a sports drink or whatever it is, like two packs of gummies an hour, like whatever it is that I've decided. I haven't practiced. So it makes me sick. <laughs> or <laughs> I, I get cramps or I'm just not used to like taking it. It makes me feel nauseous. And these are very, very common stories that people have that where they just don't practice in training. So I always tell people, you got to train your gut, get used to it in training so that on race day, you can do it. And even right. if it's a shorter race, like a half marathon, if it's something like a 10K, if you're a slow runner, you probably want to be fueling. If you're a faster mm -hmm. runner, you know, you can do it in like 40 minutes or so. You may not need to. But and I think that still, it's such yeah. a valid point there. And it goes back into the, the fat versus carb approach as well, is basically how quickly you can actually turn food into energy. And yeah. during these long events where you need to refuel, uh, carbs are a quick source of energy that can be absorbed very fast. Whereas fat metabolism is such a slow process that to be taking in fats during a race, and I've never seen a, a gel that, that is heavy in fats, <laughs> is yeah. that you just can't digest fats quick enough to actually, during a race, convert it into that fuel source. That's and, right. And the, the fact is that um, even the, the leanest of distance runners has enough fat on them to go for a number of days, you know, so right, that, yes. that you're not really lacking access to fats you do access you do lack access to glucose or sugar and and that's where the gels and such come in and, yeah. and again this isn't my expertise so i try and go with you know well-established common practices right. that have been around and for a long time that most people do yeah. right absolutely and you've had a lot of really amazing guests on your show that uh once again uh what are some of the key takeaways from all the interviews you've done in the, in the running world that uh, you think are, are very good to kind of share with people and to get out there? That if they were to condense all your podcasts down into a couple <laughs> that's lines. A lot, that's here. a lot. Because <laughs> I've gone to, I tend to just with my podcast guests, I, you know, whatever I'm interested in or, or reading about or learning about, I'll, if I read an interesting article by someone, I'll ask them if they want to come on and talk about it. So I just had Rich Blagrove on talking about strength training because a couple of weeks prior, I'd been reading an article of his. Same thing happened with Bob Murray, the um, the guy who, uh, who was talking about nutrition. I've had a number of people come on to talk about specific injury problems like uh, osteoarthritis in runners and other such things. Again, usually because I've read something by them that is talking about that topic. But it's all over the place. Like the theme is generally like running and triathlon, but it's it's really um, <laughs> quite eclectic. So it's really quite hard diverse, to say yes. these are the some of the main takeaways because it's such a, 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 a wide range of right. topics that we've covered. <laughs> 
So I would say the main point out of that is that you've gone from basically this athlete who didn't like to do long distance events. And during this whole process, the way you've become better and better at this is you've just been curious and Mm. always learning about it at the same time. And that's kind of driven you as well, right? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's interesting you say that because, um, you know, we think about like, why why do we do these? Why do we do things? Why did I get into running? Why did I used to hate it? And uh, and now I enjoy it. And yeah, I think the, the interesting thing about me when it comes to running is that I kind of came in backwards. So most people, uh, you know, they're good runners in high school. So maybe they run for college or whatever. Not good enough to go pro, but they go and be a physio because it's kind of adjacent. And then they sort of take that in. So a lot of the the running physio sort of influences that I uh, listen to their podcasts or I read their stuff, you know, they're extremely good runners when they were young. And then they sort of went from there into physio and brought their love of running into physio. I kind of went the other way. I was a physio. I enjoyed being a physio and I wanted to help runners because I was having a lot of running in the clinic. That made me more curious about running to go and try it and learn. And then I kind of got into it that way. And then I I started to love running even though I kind of suck at it. (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing is that I didn't mention this, but you know, I got inspired to do a marathon after, you know, I first got into running and I, I got injured all the time. You know, it was, most of it was just ignorance. I was just, okay, there's a training plan on the internet. I'll just do that. Six weeks later, I'm injured. Okay. I'll rest for four weeks. Then I'll try again. Okay. (laughs) I have a different injury. And this went on for five years from the time I took up running and decided I wanted to do a marathon, it was five years later until I actually did my first marathon because I had so many injuries. It was like probably averaging two injuries per year that was significant enough to put me out of running for a month or two. So (laughs) So you're staying with all these people that have this big goal because yeah, it's out there that one of the life's bucket list things to do is to check off marathon or iron man or something mm. big like that so if people come in to see you you're saying basically yeah i've got five years of injury experience trying to do that i think i can help you <laughs> yes i have made every mistake you could possibly make i mean so we're sort of 10 years into me running now and i do a lot better like my niggle my injuries are more like niggles now i know better how to how to see them coming. I know better how to avoid them. I know better how to adjust my training. Right. I'm a little bit more sensible with my changes in training and and that kind of thing. And I have learned from, again, just like you said, being curious. Okay, I've got patellofemoral pain. I'm going to go and research, research about that. Where does it, why do people get it? Where how does it present? Yeah. What is good for it? What's bad for it? Um, and, then, and I really tried to stick to the, um, you know, the peer-reviewed, academic research as opposed to um information coming from third parties you know from i get a lot of researches and such on my show yeah. because I, I want to try and stay as close to um uh, objective academic research as i as i can 
Absolutely. Um, so that you don't get too much of people's bias come in. Yeah. For sure. Now, yeah, we went into basically how good it feels, well, to have that goal, but also how good it is to actually accomplish a marathon or you know, half Ironman or even like a 5K if, if you're just getting into the sport or are wanting to improve your fitness. And you're saying, you said way back at the start there that each event or something you sign up for is the motivation factor for, for you to stay in it. Now, you kind of teased out there the other day that uh, one of those big ones might be, be an ultra for you. Are, are you going for it? I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> so I'm going to we... stop you right there. Okay. And the reason I'm going to do this is because part of part of what Matt does is also goal setting and plans, of course. And uh, one performance task out there that I heard with goals, which made so much sense to myself, was that if you ever have a goal, never tell anyone, or only tell somebody who's going to hold you accountable. Okay. <laughs> so now with you telling me that, and since I know this, I'm, I'm going to make sure you sign up for it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that um, that is interesting because um, I've heard similar things about goals. Two, two different ways of looking at it. One is that you tell people or you tell specific people in order to help you feel accountable to it. Right. Another is the, the way I do it. And the other way you mentioned is not to tell anyone. And I didn't tell anyone I wanted to run a marathon. Not until right, no. like five years later when I actually felt fit enough to sign up for one. Mm -hmm. um, not even my wife. You know, I would just go and run and I would have my little marathon <laughs> training programs that I would get off Google Images. And I just would keep it to myself because I don't know why. But it felt yeah. like it needed to be something that I was, you know, internally making my mind up to do and deciding and it wasn't really something that i wanted to share with other people right and i guess some well, it, of it, it may be sorry oh no i was just gonna say it is a solo event and yeah. it is all in your head when you're when you're going through these struggles uh the important thing about not telling people is then you get the gratification without actually having done the event is is the thing behind keeping it to yourself too. And I think that's one of the reasons why you were able then to go five years before you actually hit your goal with this, which is really amazing to hear somebody say, yeah, <laughs> it took me five years to reach my goal, but I, I, I freaking did it. And uh, I think that's, that's motivation in itself right here. And uh, for all the if anybody did drop off the, the conversation before hearing that, then they're, they are missing out. That's for <laughs> sure. <laughs> now, Matt. Yeah, no, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, just uh, kind of wrapping up here uh, with all your expertise and everything you're doing, uh, how do people find you? Oh, uh, well, if they enjoy podcasts, I would say checking out my podcast and certainly my guests are a lot more intelligent than me that's one of the criteria for getting on the show uh, you've been on so you know um and it's called the adaptive zone so uh the adaptive a d a p t i v e zone um 
And if you're wondering why it's called that, my last episode actually talks about why it's called that. So you can nice. check that one out. Definitely. And then your website is matthewboydphysio.com, correct? That's right. Yeah. So just my name with physio afterwards and then .com. And, and most of what I do now is the podcasts and the videos. I do write blogs as well, but now I tend to turn those into podcasts and videos to try and make sure that they, they can be found everywhere. So if you're, if you're right. more of a reader, um, yeah, go to the website and just uh, sign up to get the blogs sent to your email. That's easy enough. There's a little uh, form, you know, at the bottom of the page where you just put your okay. email in. Whenever I write something new, I, I share it that way and so yeah and then you're at collegiate sports medicine at red deer polytech at the gary harris center and definitely if you're struggling with an injury and you're close by check matt out all right any last words about running that you would like to just hit home on yes what i was going to say about the um you know that it was a Obviously, there was other things going on in my life during that five years. I wasn't just running, right? Right, yes. But it was very, very disheartening when I would get, you would get to, you know, okay, I'm building up my mileage. Okay, I, this week I ran 50K. This is going well. And then your foot's killing you and you can't walk. And you're like, you you try again the next week. It's still hurting. You try again the next week. You're like, this is done. You know, it's so disheartening. I think that's one of the reasons I'm quite passionate about trying to help people with these problems. Definitely. um, As frustrating as those incidents were and you go through them, that's why it was so much more satisfying when I did actually manage to finish my first marathon, which was by far and away the best event I've ever done. It was was one of the best days of my life. You know, it sounds a little melodramatic, but it kind of was... It had been building. I'd been trying to get to it for five years. It took a long time. Uh, <laughs> and it was in Montreal. And it was just, yeah, it was a very, very memorable day. And I think, you know, when you have those goals and when you hit these massive setbacks, um, trying to remember that those setbacks are sort of part of the story in the end and part of the reason it's, you know, you do things because they're difficult. And for me, that was a very difficult thing to do. Some people don't find that that difficult. And some people, that's too difficult. But it's really about what's, difficult for you and what you find inspiring so yeah excellent now i find it very inspiring matt and thanks for sharing that with us that is all the time we have today so from the hardy brain once again taking athletic introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and changing them into ironclad brain performers stay tuned to next time